Steve plays his Vuvuzela at every game. It's his lucky ritual. Give it a rest, Steve. But Steve doesn't need rituals when paying. Visa's cutting-edge technology helps protect his payments. He trusts rituals for football. He trusts Visa for payments. Visa, how you pay matters. Official FIFA partner. So, I've got a man here who was sentenced to 99 years in the UK prison system. His name is Sean, spelt correctly like mine, not S-E-A-N. And... In America, you hear these 200-year sentences, 500-year sentences. You know, prosecutors get the headline news. They're going to get a promotion. But in the UK, you don't very often hear about a 99-year sentence. So that is quite extraordinary. Usually, I start out with a hard-hitting story from crime or prison. But in this case, I would like to build up to the events that led to the attempted murder that generated this 99-year sentence. So, Sean, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. And you said that you were arrested three separate times. You got three separate prison sentences. So do you want to just go back and tell us a bit about what led to the very first prison sentence? How old were you back then? Um, well, I was 18 for my first prison sentence. You were a teenager. Yeah, so yeah. I was 18. Um, the build-up to that was, as a young teenager, um, I used to go around, a few of us used to go around to my friend's house, you know, we'd drink, we'd smoke weed, you know, and just and all chill out. So I was 13, so this one night I've gone around to Are my... you were 13? I was 13 at that time, yeah. Yeah, okay, um, just a kid. So we all used to doss around at my friend's house, you know, and his dad would be there and, and what have you. So this night I've gone round, um, gone round for my, to my friend, see if he's in, and he wasn't in. So his dad said, oh, he's not in, but come in and, and have a smoke. So we've gone in, we're having a smoke of weed, I'm drinking lager. I don't know how long we'd been drinking for, but then I, I'd blacked out. And when I'd come to, I'd been abused. Um... So I'd walk up in the bedroom, um, he wasn't there, usually my trousers were off. So I grabbed my trousers, I run down the stairs. When we come down the stairs, there was a living room, he had to go through the living room to the kitchen, so he wasn't in the living room. So I was out the front door, so I went home and it must have been a while before I'd told my dad because, you know, I, I, I didn't understand it. And what, did, wrote, what did you tell your dad? Well, I was struggling in school, and from being unhappy, things used to go over my head. I was laid back to becoming angry. My schoolwork dropped. Um, teachers were concerned because I used to play football, and, and I weren't interested in that. My mood at home, and I was brought up with me, my dad, and my brother. So my dad was at work all day. You know, he provided a really good home life. But obviously, after everything slipping, questions were starting to be asked. So, I, so you're like just living a happy life as a teenager. Yeah. You go over to your mates. He's not there. Dad says, come in. You wake up abused. Your trousers are down. Mm. And now you, you're acting up in school and your life is going a bit off the rails yeah. at such a young age. And w- w- what was it you specifically said to your dad? Can you remember? Why? Why? why uh, you... I basically told him what had happened. Oh, you told him what had happened. Yeah, I told okay. him, you know, that that what he'd done to me, and you know, I was took, I was took down to another family member's house, my nans, and 
and it was discussed and I was sent out of the room. I was brought back in and told, you know, we'll deal with it. You know, I've got family of criminals. Um, we never speak about this again. And my dad being an old school, this was, so I'm what, 34 now, I was 13. So back in them times, men didn't speak about this sort of stuff. You know, and as a, my dad being a single parent, I don't think he knew how to talk about it. So it was, it was, it was never spoke about. But in my mind, I was never going to see the guy again. But I was still never right. You know, I still had all these feelings of guilt, confusion, why me, my sexuality. I had all this anger inside me. And I just carried on through school. And, and I left school, I did GCSEs, but I didn't do anything good with them. Um, so I left school then and, and started working. What was you working as? Uh, so I started, because I was 16, I started working at my dad's. He was a transport manager, so I worked at a transport haulage firm doing forklift truck driver. So I did that for a while. Then I did a few other different jobs, and I went into security then. so When you say security, what does that mean? Well, that was doing site work, door work, um, just all different security jobs. All work like bars, nightclubs. Yeah, yeah, and then during the week was other security jobs wherever I was sent by the firm. Um, so this one night I got ready for work. Um, so I got my shower, I got my uniform on, and I, th I thought, right, I need to get some cigarettes. So the shop was at the bottom of my street. So I'd gone down to the shop, got my cigarettes, come out, and I bumped into someone, and I'd asked him about a particular person that, that owed me some money. And he said, yeah, he's saying at so-and-so's house. Well, this so-and-so was my friend's dad. Oh, God, the, this was the abuser. Yeah, so I'm 18, all these years of all this build-up, <sighs> I'm never going to see him again. I felt betrayed that nobody had done anything. I had this belief that, you know, we were always brought up to believe if somebody kicks one, we all limp. So in other words, we look after each other and I had this expectation of family members and because the criminals a lot of them and whatnot and no one had done anything no one had looked after me so from there i went straight home went in got a knife into the car and i went straight through the guy's front door um i ended up fighting with his sons let's slow down a second then you're at that front door with a knife yeah and did you knock or did you just try and kick it in or I just try and open it? it? No, I kicked it. You just kicked I it kicked in? kicked it open, yeah. So just take us through very slowly okay. what happened. You kicked the door in. So I'd kicked the front door in. There was a vestibule door, but it was ajar. I've run in and three of his sons were sat there. Are you holding this knife? Is it hidden? I've got the knife out. So three of his sons are, are, are there. So they jump up and I start fighting with one of them. One of them run out the house and another one run up the stairs. So the one I was fighting with, I don't know how I didn't cut him because I had the knife, it was a kitchen knife, but he was on the floor. So now I went up after the other lad. Uh, I'd got him at the top of the stairs, got him by the neck. Where's this, your, this is the other son. This is the other son who'd run upstairs. Where's your dad? Where's your, He's in the bedroom. So I let go of him, gone into the bedroom, and his dad had heard the commotion. This is the guy who abused me, so... He's getting his trousers on. So I'd gone. I hit him a few times, gripped hold of him. My aim was to kidnap him. So I'd got him to the bedroom door and I started hearing police sirens. So I knew the first lad, who, the first brother, who, the first son who got out the house 
He'd rung the police. So I let go of him, run down the stairs, jumped in my car, took a police chase, got away, and I got caught the next day. That was my first prison sentence. So when the police got you, where were yeah. you? So I was walking back down. So I'd gone up to a prostitute's house because I knew there'd be a police to go to family, friends. So I'd gone somewhere. This time I was wheeling and dealing in a bit of drugs. So I'd gone to a prostitute's house to lay low. The next morning I thought, right, I need to go home. I was walking home. As I got near my front door, they just swooped on me. So they was already waiting around the area. And I got my first prison sentence in. Right, so now you've been grabbed by the cops. Yeah. They take you down to the jailhouse. To the police station, yeah. And do they tell you what you've got charged with, what you're suspected of? Yeah, they tell me what I'm suspected of, which is attempt to kidnap uh, GBH because I'd cut him. And can you just explain what GBH means? So that's grievous bodily harm. Because you cut him. Yeah, okay. and also the other lad had injuries as well. So The sons had in some injuries as yeah. well. All right, so... Are they saying to you, you're facing a lot of time in prison now because of this? No, I'm not commenting because, you know, I've never been in trouble, but I'd always been told if you get lifted, you don't speak to the police. It's drilled in as a young age with me. Yeah. As a lot of estate teenagers are, you don't speak to the police. Yeah. You know, so I was no comment, no comment. And I'd made the mistake of trying to be clever that they'd said, as I got in the car and I got to the end of the street, it was a dead end, so I had to turn left onto another street because if I turn right, it's dead end. So I've got to the end of the street. There's a police van. Got its lights on. It's coming up the street. Now we're stuck. He can't get past and I can't get past. So we're in the crossroads. So me, I flashed him. So I'm in the car, flash him. He's come round. You know, he's come round, waved. And as he's going down the street, he must have realised because I've booted off. <laughs> <laughs> he could have had me, so I'm off. So it was only a police van, so I got away from it. So as the interview was going on, I tried getting a bit clever. So he said, oh, well, the police came up the street, you flashed him, and I said, well, why didn't the police van just block me in and arrest me? And he went, who mentioned the police van? Um, you. No, we didn't. We said police. That's it then. My face goes bright red. I'm embarrassed. They've got me. Oh, There's nothing I could do because I'm trying him. to blag some of it by... You know, when, you, when I'm trying to be clever that I don't know them clothing, I don't know that jacket, yeah. you know. So that was it then. I got charged with that because how could I get round that that I knew it was a police van. Right. You know? So how long are you unsentenced for? Uh, so I'm on remand six months, seven months. And where were you housed? At Preston Prison. And how old are you at this point? <laughs> no, I wasn't. I, sorry about that. That was the third part. I was 18, so I was in the Young Offenders, which was Lancaster Farms. Yep. So I'm 18, going to the Young Offenders. Going to Young Offenders for the first time. What's yeah. your first day in Young Offenders like? I was shitting it. When I'm on the when I'm on the sweat box and I'm going, I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, I've seen scum. I've seen all this, you know. I don't know how to handle it because I've never been in, in that situation. Uh, luckily, when I'm walking to the induction wing, one of my friends shouted out the window. You know, so luckily <laughs> I walked on the wing and because it's my local jail, I'd knew a lot of the teenagers. Yeah. You know, so it was like, it was just like a school for me. Yeah. You know, I took the trusted jobs. You know, I was a big enough lad. I wasn't, you know, a lot of my friends were in there. So it didn't really bother me, the, the young offenders. How did the guards treat you? 
not too bad. Uh, I'd seen the way they were with some of them. Uh, I'd been in there maybe two weeks, and I were in the gym, and and another lad from another town. I'm from. I don't know if I can. If you want the town. public to know or not, it's up so, to you whatever you want to say. So, so just your, just say my so town. I'm in my town. Um, there's a lad from a town next, which is like three miles. So he'd made some comment about people from my town. So we're in the gym. We go back to the wing. We sit eating dinner. My friends are sat around the table and they're winding me up. You haven't done anything about that in that gym. People are going to start bullying you. People think you're a victim. People think you're weak. You're going to have to go deal with it. And I'm thinking, oh, and he's at the end of the wing eating his dinner. So I jump up, I run across and I just start attacking him. The next minute I look down, my feet are not on the floor. I get spun round, thrown on the floor and wrapped up. You know, so they restrain me, twist me up. And these were big guys. You know, these were big guys. And I'd seen what they'd done with other people. So I learned to give them respect, not speak to them, but give them respect because they're a bigger gang than me. You know, so they treat me pretty fairly. When uh, you say gang, what gang is this? Well, the prison officers. Prison are, officers, you know, yeah. Okay. You know, they're a big gang. So, you, I, yeah. you know, I thought, well... I've already been wrapped up once. They've already restrained me and it hurts and it does hurt. So I learned a lesson there that if I'm going to attack someone, I've got to do it not in front of them. So you're in this environment now where it's doggy dog then. Yeah. You know, you've suffered this horrific thing. You tried to get revenge and now you're having to fend for yourself and prove yourself and make a reputation. So you don't become a victim mm. in here. I imagine you've got all the rage still inside oh, you yeah. because the, Perpetrators not been held accountable in any way. Yeah. Um, convict justice or otherwise. And you're in there for how long before you get sentenced? Uh, about six, seven months. Six, seven months. Yes. Yeah. And how did it feel to get sentenced? I think the worst thing was watching my mum and sister cry. Oh, dear. Do you know, I got the sentence and, and I was brave. I didn't care. Do you know? I, I didn't really bother because I thought, well, this is my life now. This is who I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. So, but when I'd gone down to the cells and then my mum and sister asked to see me in a visiting bit, mm-hmm. you know, I think that, that upset me more than than anything. Yeah. But I'd come to the fact that this was going to be my life forever because as soon as I get out, I'm going straight back after him again. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm sure a lot of the public watching this to hear you were 13 years old and this happened to you, I'm sure a lot of the public watching this fully understand where you're coming from when you say that. Mm. I can't imagine what you know what was going through your mind. Um, so, how long did you actually serve? Uh, Seventeen and a half months. And that did, any, sentence. did anything? You said it was quite an easy ride for you. You knew people in there. Yeah. And was there anything else memorable or any other crazy stories from that period of time? Uh, not really, because after a few months after I got sentenced, I got sent to an open young offenders. So that was just like an holiday camp. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it's was an open prison. Yeah. So, and then after a few months, uh, I used to go out every day and work. Yeah. And then come back to the jail. Mm-hmm. You know, weekends I play football, I go on home leave. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't, that sentence was more relaxed. Um, so is your mum visiting you? Yeah, my mum, my dad. And because your crime was the abuser, were your family on your side about you taking action or did they think that... What, what was their attitude towards your crime at that point? 
They wanted me. My mum wanted me to go to the police. My mum wanted me to speak to the police. I see. That weren't happening. Yeah. That weren't happening. My dad, my dad basically said to me, you carry on on this path without getting the help, then you're going to end up with a life sentence. Um, Does the court system not know then at all what's happened? They did on the second one. Okay, we're going to get to that then. All right, so can you remember the date of your release? No. Do you remember roughly what year it was? 2005. 2005. And did you try and go back to normal a bit? No. That was it. Your mission was to get this bastard. Yeah. I told the probation officer, so two weeks before release, a probation officer come to see me to do a release and said, look, you're going to see me when you're released on licence. So I told him there's two options. You're either going to move me out of the town, which I ain't going to do, or you've got to move him out of the town. And he said, why? So I said, as soon as I find him, then I'm going to kill him. And his response was, we can't do anything until you do something about it. (laughs) Did you have a different plan this time, thinking it went wrong last time, I'm going to do this differently? No, I was just going to go and just keep doing it until... straight in? Yeah, just straight in. So it took me two weeks. So the first week, I found out where he lived. Uh, and on the second week... Had he moved? Yeah. So the second week, that was it. Where Did you know who he lived with? Were his sons his still sons, in there? His sons were still living there. Um, so my uncle on my mum's side lived on the same street. And that's how I got to find him because I was sat in his flat, we're drinking. And he said, I know where he lives. And I said, where? And he said, at the bottom of the road. So... That would, was it then. Would he have been notified you were released and you'd said something to the person who interviewed you to yeah, the effect that you were going to get him, so he would have been on alert? Yeah, he had panic alarms. And his sons would have been on alert. Yeah. He had a panic alarm. He had panic alarms in the house. Okay. And I was told that. You knew that? Yeah. So were you trying to think of ways to get around all this? No, I was just going to end him. Right, okay. So go on, describe the night then that you go over there, just take us slowly through that. So I wait, I'm in my car, I wait and think, if I go through the house, then it's not going to work. So I wait for him to come out of the house. And what time of day is it? Is it day or night? This is about... So I go around, just around the corner where I can see it's probably dinner time-ish. Yeah. And I sit there. And I sit there till about six, seven o'clock. And I see him come out of the house and go to get in his car. As I see him go to get in his car, I fly around, fly in front of his car, jump out. And I was struggling because I'm trying to get him in my car. So you grabbed him? Yeah. And how are you yeah. holding him? So I'm holding him with his neck. Headlock? Yeah. I've got a knife and I'm trying to drag him and put him in the back of the car. Uh, he's obviously fighting for his life. He's struggling. He knows. Is he bigger than you? No. No, but I wasn't this big. You know, I've, I put a lot, you know, from 18 to now, I was still a big lad. But when someone's struggling and I'm holding a knife and I'm trying to get him in the car, yeah, people don't get in that easy when... They're not just going to climb in and say, let's go for a, a ride. So There's a lot going on. Yeah. So he's fighting, and when someone's fighting for their life... They're going to get superhuman strength. That's it, yeah. So, But this time, his son's run out of the house. So, I let, they come at me, I let go of him. I'm fighting with them now. Um, I'm fighting with them. The police fly around, you know, it took them minutes. Um, on response are on me, and I'm arrested again. What are you charged with this time? That was 
the same again. That was attempted kidnap, weapons, uh, and blackmail. Blackmail. <laughs> what was the reason for blackmail? Um, the the threats of if you're not gonna if you don't get in this car, I think they tried putting whatever charges they could. So you know, even the judge were like, "I was a blackmail charge on this." But the threats were, "If you don't do what I'm saying, you know, I'm gonna kill you." Right. So that was an extra charge. So I got three year, ten months for that one. So how long were you unsentenced for? I'm not sure. Under a year. Were you back in the same jail as last time? Yeah. Same remand place. So you knew yeah. people in there? Yeah, as soon as I went in. Did uh, you get in any situations? Um, just the usual young offenders, like people shout out the window, you know, abusing your parents or, you know, hear people having to sing songs out the window, like Bar Bar Black Sheep and... You know, people being bullied, and it was a lot. The second time was harder, was mentally, harder. mentally, mentally, because I couldn't take the the banter. So if I thought someone had said something and they were trying to have a laugh, I automatically just attacked them. Yeah, because I'm not a victim, and you're not going to make me sing songs out the window. Yeah, it's not happening. You know, so with that sort of thing in young offenders, you tend to start getting left alone. So can you remember the first time you attacked someone over something like that? Um, well, the first sentence was the lad from the other town. Yeah. Uh, the second one was uh, a big guy. Well, he was a big, big lad from Preston. And what had he done? You know, I can't remember, but he'd, he'd come out. With, I'd worked with him. We worked on the server, and he'd come out with some jibe. Yeah. And, you know, I tried attacking him, but I, How, got, what, I got a good idea. What method did you try and attack him? I just started throwing punches. Behind the server, it was. Yeah. So we're in the server, and... You know, I didn't come out on top of that one. So he decked you, did he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But there was a few more situations like that. Yeah, it just... Yeah, it's just... I don't know. It's hard to explain without... Because it just seems normal behaviour that... If yeah. you're in a young offenders, you don't really register or think, oh, use that as a memory. Yeah. But it's just all that sort of stuff of the bullying. It's just rough and tumble, isn't it, in there? Yeah. Because yeah. they're all young teenagers thinking you've got to prove something, got a mm. facade, a face... You know, a name. It's just playground. So how long before you got released from the second sentence? Um, well, I had to do 12 months licence from mm -hmm. my first sentence, so I had to serve that. Yep. As soon as I finished that, I then had to start the second, the three-year, ten-month then. Mm -hmm. So I'd done half of that, so I don't know what that is, but I did half of that. Yeah. And are you changing your attitude towards doing this a third time or are you just psyched up still no i started using drugs okay and i found that they were blocking my emotions and my feelings so i got out of prison yeah and so on the second one i then went from the young offenders to the adults okay so my uncle was in an adult jail so i was in the young offenders lancaster farms mm -hmm. my uncle's in um another jail mm -hmm. called wymot so he's saying, come here, come here, you're with the adults. And so I'm saying, I want to go here, I'm 21. The screws are telling me, stay here, you've got to, you've got to cush your life here. You don't want to go to the adults. Just, mm -hmm. just, but I'm adamant. I'm going to the adults, you know, and that was an eye-opener. But while I was in the adults and I worked on the server and, and I was told by some older guys mm -hmm. that if somebody says one thing to you while you're on the server, as soon as you finish your work, you've got to go into their cell. There's no two ways about it. You have to go into that cell and you have to fight, whether you win, lose, whatever. You can't 
let people bully you because you were grown men. So that's what I did. I ended up going in and I ended up giving someone a good hiding. What was that over? Um, there was some over the food portions. Uh, in fact, it was biscuits. I was giving these shortbread biscuits. Now, we had this big box, so I've been given the job by the number one on the survey. Right, you're giving the biscuits out. So as people come in, I'm giving them one biscuit out of this pack. So this other guy come and said, I want two. You're not having two, but I want two. I said, look, they've been counted. If you get an extra one, someone's missing out. It's causing problems. And I was quite wary of upsetting people because food runs out. The lad wants his food and he's entitled to it. So, And I'm thinking, I've got to stand my ground. I've got to stand my ground. So you're giving me a bit of verbal abuse. As soon as surgery was finished, the number one said, you better go deal with that. So I did. So the next day, dinner time, it was on a Saturday, I go to the surgery. I put my hat on. Next minute, the principal officer comes, which in the prison you've got officer, senior officer, principal. She's usually in charge, or he's usually in charge of the house block. The SO's in charge of the wing. So the PO come, and she had a couple of screws with her. So she said, Sean, can you come with me? So I thought, here we go. This is because I'd attacked, you know, this fella. So I get taken to this office. I go and sit down. More screws come in. And there's gym screws. So they're quite big guys. So I'm thinking, this is a bit more than what I've done. I don't know what's going on. So she said, I've got some news for you. Um, your brother's lost his life. Oh, my God. So my brother had been murdered. Your brother had been murdered at this yeah. point? Can you give us all the circumstances of that? Are you okay to talk about that? Um, I can talk without going into too much because obviously there's people out there that I don't want to involve in this. Oh, yeah, don't use any real names. Um, so my brother had gone round. Um, there was something to do with some money. My friends were involved. My brother's gone to collect money. So your brother went to collect some money for mm. some of your friends? Yeah. He'd gone round is this, with a, his dr- is this a drug debt? Yeah. Okay. How much money was involved? I don't you know? know. I don't know the exact. And he went over there. Was he like prepared to like pull a weapon on these guys or anything? I don't know because when yeah. I had first gone to prison, he was a kid. Yeah. So he was racing motocross bikes. Uh, he was sponsored by Kawasaki Green Team. He had a motor home. He was doing really well. As soon as I started my prison sentences from the first one, he gave that up. He started smoking weed, hanging around with gangs. So he was getting bad. So as soon as she said. His brother's lost his life, he's been murdered. That's my fault. I didn't protect him like nobody protected me, Sean, you know, so I've got that guilt. That's my I'm brought up with my kid brother. I didn't protect my brother and I should have you know, so all that's going on. I've got a lot of anger going on. when he went to the house to get this debt then was did they stab him? Did they shoot him? No, it was just a guy on his own. Um the guy said he's not paying, my brother told his friends to start taking his stuff. Yeah. The guy jumped up, my brother's friends run off. So the guy beat my brother to death. Beat him to death? Put him in, you know, he he worked the doors. He was a big man, he was a strong man. Put him in a chokehold. You know, my brother was probably six foot. He was only 19, six foot, but he was like 10 stone. There was nothing to him. He didn't have a fight in him. Uh, He was all mouth. But the guy choked hold him (sighs) till he died, threw him out on the street, locked his door and went to bed. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Did he end up getting sentenced for that? So he got charged with murder, got put on remand, then got let off. Got let off? Yeah, they let him off with it because they said um, there was a lot of con- there was a lot of kicking off. 
but the CPS said that if you believe you're protecting yourself or your property and you use reasonable else. force, yeah. you cannot be charged with a crime. So he got let off because he was protecting himself or his property. Do you know? So how did you find out about this? How did I find out? That it died. By that principal officer. She'd sat, that's why all the prison officers were there, gotcha. ready for me to kick off. Gotcha. She told me then. Yeah. Do you know that... That was it from the guards. That was the first thing you knew. Yeah, that she told me. This this senior officer told me. Um, so my uncle was on the same wing, and that's my dad's. My dad's out of like six of them. My dad's the youngest. My uncle's the oldest that I was on the wing with. He was two doors down from me. Yeah. So my dad used to every month send me extra money. So that extra money was to buy tobacco for my uncle because he was an heroin addict. So he said, "You don't give him that." If he needs anything, you sorted him out. So earlier on in that day, my uncle had come and said, I need four items. So what he meant was four packets of tobacco. So I said, what do you need? He said, I need to buy some stuff, some gear. I'll get it you later on. By this time, I'd been told my brother's been murdered. So I go back to the wing. Obviously, I'm in shock. Shock. My uncle comes to me. What's up? I said, Danny's been murdered. His response was, have you got them four items for me? <laughs> that's, fucking, that's fucked up. <laughs> it's his nephew. And his concern is getting this tobacco. So I said to him, I will give you t- the tobacco, but I'm taking the drugs with you. I never took anything like that, Sean. I took painkillers and weed. No, I'm in, on a, I'm in with somebody else, one of his mates. I said, forget him, cut him out. I will pay for it all but I'm smoking these drugs with you. So that's what he did. And that was the first time that I took heroin then and I felt I felt at peace. Did you inject it? No, no, I smoked it. So I'd never touched it. My brother had just been murdered and I slept like a baby that night. And that sounds odd to say, but that's what it did to me. Did that make you want to have more? Oh, yeah. Because when I woke up, when I got up the next morning and I thought, oh, shit, I'm in bits. I know what's going to take that away, heroin. And that's what I did through the rest of that sentence. Every day I cut him out and I was getting my own supply then. How are you paying for it? My dad. So I'll be ringing my dad up and it's horrible. I feel it's a shame. It's horrible to say that that's what I was doing, that his son's died and I'm ringing him up saying, Dad, I need 50 quid. Dad, I need 50 quid. What's it for? Weed. I need to calm down, I need to, you know, and my dad's get sending, the, well, I was just getting phone vouchers, phone credit for people who had mobiles, top-ups. So that's what I was doing. Do you think your uncle told your dad what it was really going for? No, because my uncle was on, he's not going to tell my dad, he, <laughs> my dad would end up. Yeah, yeah. You know. So you're just in a haze now. This initial incident that we talked about at the very beginning, the ripple effect has gone out. It's ruining your life, your brother's dead. You're in a haze going through the rest of this sentence. Did anything else during the second sentence happen that we've not talked about? No. No, because I just stayed off my head. Okay. Um, do you remember what year you were released off the second sentence? So, 2008. 2008. Just yeah. over 10 years ago. And are you thinking that when I get out, I need to get off this level of drug use as soon as I left the prison I didn't touch it okay 
How, how did like, you have the mental strength to not do that? Because of the stigma behind it. Okay. The st- stigma of being a smackhead. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to tell anyone, especially in my area, I'm a smackhead, you know. So, yeah. Uh, and then I met someone and that changed my life. Can you tell you us know? who you met and how, how that came about? So I met no. this girl and, and I'd met her through my uncle. My uncle, was, this is another uncle. So he was getting troubled by someone. So he said, can you come and live at my house? So I said, yeah. So every day we'd go to the gym. We'd go into town. I followed him everywhere because of this person. What kind of trouble was he in? Uh, the guy was just doing stuff to his van. They were best mates growing up and he'd split up with his wife. Now, my uncle continued going to her house as friends. There was nothing. But he, kept, he ended up supporting her more than him and he turned on him, which... Rightly so, I think. I think I'd be a bit peed off if my best friend who I'd grown up with as a kid, you know, was giving more support to my ex-wife than, you know. So he was getting, you know, he was getting death threats. He was getting all these different stuff. So on this day, he said, I need to go drop some money off. So we'd gone. I'm sat in the van. He's come out the house and waved me. So as I've got out the van and I'm walking towards him, there's this girl on the doorstep. And I look and I think, wow, wow. And the first thing he said to her was, look at the size of him, let's see who's going through his front door now. Now, I get embarrassed. I stop, turn around, jump in the van. <laughs> he gets in the van and I said, look, never tell, never, you don't have to do that. If somebody's come in, they're coming, don't instigate and never use me like that again. So I end up going to a party. I'm drunk. So I needed to drop someone off in town. So I dropped someone off in the next town. I get a bottle of vodka in the town and I'm drinking the vodka driving back to the party. I come up at the side of a car and we're going round the roundabout. It's a guy, there's a gang of them in this car and they're looking and they're like smirking at me. So we set off and I go to cut them up, but I clip them. And I don't mean to clip them. So they're chasing me now down this country road. We come into this town. I go to spin round the corner. Didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I was trying to, you know, I'd seen it on TV, handbrake, spin. <laughs> I'm steaming. I spin the car, hit a bollard, end up on the roof. So I climb out the car, somebody helps me up, I hit him and run off. And I go to my uncle's ex-wives. So when I go in the house, I'm drunk. I sit down and this woman sat there. This woman that I'd met. So I realise I've left my phone in the car. Well, I had two phones because I was doing dodgy things. So I had one dodgy phone and I had a burner phone on my own. So I'm saying to her, I've left my phones in the car. So she's buzzing off me. She said, ring it. I ring it and I'm giving, I'm threatening this guy that I'm going to cut him up and if he doesn't give my phone back. And because I'm that drunk, I don't realise this is a police officer that's answering the phone. So he's saying, come and meet me on this car park. Come on. And I'm like, she's buzzing off it. She thinks this is exciting. So she goes home the next day. I get her phone number, you know. So we end up we get together then. But I'm now having abuse off her ex-husband. He's targeting me now, you know. So the relationship didn't even start good because I've got all this worry with this fella. Um, I'm start then. I start wheeling and dealing. So I start selling heroin, crack, collecting money. Going with people when they're picking weight of when they're picking a weight up from another town, you know, I'm making my money doing dodgy things. Uh, then she's pregnant, mm. so I think, wow, finally, I've got this 
stunning woman who, why would she look at me for a start? Mm. Now she's pregnant. I think finally my life's getting better, but I've still got all this inside that's boiling. You know, it's still stirring, but I'm suppressing it. I'm smoking weed and I'm using violence whenever I can because as soon as I attack someone, I felt better. Do you think that when you were violent, it was almost like you were channeling the energy you wanted to use on the abuser? Definitely, 100%, because that's who I sin. Yeah. That's who I sin. So, and, but as soon as I'd attack, or even things like I'd go out on a bender, I'd go into another town, go into a pub, I'd get drunk, I'd see a group of lads, and I'd start trouble with them just to get a good hiding. Just you against the bunch? Yeah, just, and I wouldn't fight back. I'd get a pasting because one on a gang is not, you know, you're not going to win when you're drunk. But I used to do it so I could feel that pain because that pain was better than this in a year. And it's hard to explain that. If you weren't looking for that then, how would you instigate that? I'd knock them, I'd bump into them, you know, I'd keep eye contact till someone said what you're looking at, you know, or I'd say what you're fucking looking at, let's all go outside because I wanted to feel pain. And that's sadistic, but... It stops what I was feeling inside. From your own situation. Yeah. Or I'd yeah. attack someone. Yeah. Uh, and did you get, you know, if gangs of lads are beating you like that, did you not sustain any serious injuries? Oh, I got, you know, I had broken ribs and my nose has been done a few times and, you know, concussion and, yeah, I've had, I've had some good, you know, I've had some really good beatings. Looks like you've got this guardian angel now and you've got a child on the way. Yeah. But you're still fighting your inner demons. Yeah. How is that going to get resolved or is it not going to get resolved? It's not. So, like I say, I'm selling drugs, I'm doing whatever. So every day, my uncle who was in jail with, he's now been released. So every day, I'm I'm not going to say you because we're on camera, but I used to have to take my uncle a 20 bag of heroin every day to stop him going out stealing. And So the person was feeding his habit. So every morning, he'd be ringing me up, have you got my breakfast? So I'd go around to his house. I'd give him his drugs and I'd go do my about my daily business. So my girlfriend miscarried. Mm. Uh, there's a lot more within that, but she lost a child. Yeah. So she lost a child. I go around to my uncle's. I give him his £20 bit. I say, I'm nipping to the toilet. I nip up to the toilet. I come back down, walk in the living room. And as soon as I walk in the living room, I smell it because he's smoking it on foil. Mm. I smell, I think, wow, I know what's going to take this pain away. She, you know, I've mm. lost a child, you know, because I remember what it did with my brother. I haven't dealt with any of this stuff, so it's still inside. How, do you mind me asking how long was she pregnant for? Two months. Two months. Maybe. And, and how did you find she, out that she's lost a she child? She told me. I'd she's, gone out on a bender. Yeah. Um, so I'd gone out on the bender, so I'd gone Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday morning, she rung me up, you need to come round. I went round, I went home, and she told me that, she told me that my baby was gone. And how did that make you feel when you heard that then? Crushed me. Crushed me, so I just walked out the house, selfish, I left her, I just walked out the house. And I went and took my uncle his, his breakfast, you know, so I walk in the living room, and I smell it, and I know straight away... I know it's going to take all this pain away. So I said to him, give me the tin foil. No, no. So I said, you don't give it me. I'm going to stop coming around every day. It's as simple as that. 
He gives it me, and that's it now. I'm smoking heroin. I'm smoking that every day. So I go from 18 stone down to 13 stone. But what I'm doing is I'm still doing security jobs. I'm still trying to intimidate people with the, with the, the crimes that we're doing, the stuff I'm involved in. So I used to have to put extra jumpers on, extra T-shirts, a jacket, because I'm hiding it from home. But when we first got together, oh, so we split up now, and I get with a new girl. Is that a permanent, you ended with that one now permanently? Yeah. 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 We go back to each other, but I then got to another relationship. So this new one, we used to get takeaways every night, different takeaways and whatnot. So I'd finish mine, she'd still be eating hers, and I'd say, have you finished? Have you finished? And yeah, so I'd eat hers as well, you know. But it got to, because I was smoking this heroin and I got really bad, I got to where I couldn't even eat mine. People are recognising the change in me. People are recognising, and I ended up having a breakdown then. What's your relationship with your dad at this point? I don't see him. You weren't seeing him? No. Okay, and that, so you have a breakdown. What's the symptoms of the breakdown? Um, my head's gone. You know, I'm a mess. I'm crying. You know, I'm, I'm just a mess. But it was that bad that I walked past someone I grew up with in the street, and I walked straight past him. I didn't even recognise him. People are looking for me. I disappeared. So people are looking, and they can't. No one can find me. I didn't even recognise who he was. He rings a family member. They ring. Well, it was my mum. My mum rings the police. Please get me. So have you got a relationship with your mum then at this point? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the police arrest me, or they arrest me. They get hold of me, take me to the hospital. Um, and I get sectioned. Which means you you got put in a mental institution. Yeah. Yeah. And what what did they say the reason they were putting you in the institution was? Well, they told me that I either voluntary go in or they section me. Okay. So I took the voluntary route because yeah. they said it's three months or if you get sectioned, it's six months plus until we deem you fit. Yeah. But I'm sat there and I'm looking at people and I'm thinking, there's nothing wrong with me because I can physically... I can visibly see what people's problems were. That they had mental health issues, you know, whether they're smacking their head off a door. But mine was all inside. So I wouldn't speak to them. Uh, and after the three months, I said, we had this review and I blagged them. You know, I've got to the trick where I'm a criminal. So I learned to manipulate. I learned to tell people what they want to hear. Mm. They let me out. But... It's probably the worst thing that ever happened. Before we go there, what's it like being sectioned? What's the living conditions like in there? It's like being in an hospital, but it's mayhem. In a hospital? What's yeah. the mayhem? The other the other patients. Oh, because they're really acting the, up. You know, the violence, the people running into doors, people trying to escape, the violence. So when you say it's like yeah. a hospital then, is there like a common room where people are going and there's like rooms with beds? Yeah, so you've got like the normal room and then you've got like a corridor behind it so I said like in a square shape and then there are the rooms yeah you know that we stay in and you're confined to that um, and then a couple of times during the day they'll take you outside into another secure area where you can have a fag meal times you'd have to be escorted to where the dining room was be, be like being back in prison again yeah and how did you interact with the other people who were in there didn't I didn't speak. I didn't. I just sat, and I just didn't speak to no one because I, w- I didn't want to speak to anyone. Did you know? anyone come up to you and approach you? I think at the start, 
But then with my aggressive tone, my actions, telling people to fuck off, you know, verbal threats, people left me alone. And were the staff uh, reasonable with you? They were and they weren't. Like, they, you know, if I didn't take my medication, you know, I'd get wrestled, you know, they, and I'd get stabbed in my arse with summer and... Do you remember the name of the medication they had you on back then? I got something called Cotiapin, which was uh, like an antipsychotic. So that had just aised me. So all day I'd be sat and I just, I didn't have anything in me. You know, and I just, I was just monged out. Um, and whatever the stuff was injected with me, injecting me with, lasts for days. And it was like, I'd be drooling. You know, I couldn't eat. It was... It was like reality was here, but reality wasn't in here. It's, it's hard to explain. I could see stuff, but I wasn't in that reality. Did you think this sectioning was helping you or it was just putting a chemical straight jacket on? It was just putting a, a straight jacket on. But that was my fault for not wanting to speak and tell people what was going on. Because at this time, I'm not telling people what me and the demons were. I'm a man. Men don't speak about feelings, emotions, do you know well, I'm going to tell someone my business, I'm a criminal, you tell no one nothing. So I wouldn't tell them anything what was going on inside. So it was like a catch-22 that I'm in there, but nothing's being done. And what are the demons saying? I want to get out of there. I need to get out of there, do you know? Are the demons still saying to go and hurt the original? Oh, yeah, user? that was her every single night. And I'd dream about what I wanted to do to him. Um... I'm not going to say too much on that, just in case I end up getting sectioned again, like, you know, everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where but you... I used to visualise what I was going to do to him. Mm. You know, like the second time I went after him, then I went to prison and lads who had seen on the first sentence saying, why are you not wearing a balaclava? <laughs> why am I want to wear a balaclava? I want him to see me. I want him to look at me yeah. when I'm torturing him. Yeah. You know, the guy's dead now, so it don't really matter. Okay. Um, that weren't through me, obviously, because I'm sat here, but... I used to visualise and I wanted him to see. So I go shopping, so it had died down a bit. And what really triggered it is I'm walking down the supermarket and I see his blazer. He used to wear this blazer like an old-fashioned blazer. And Hold I on see a sec. It. You're out again now and you see his blazer, the abuser's blazer. This is before I get sectioned. Oh, before you got sectioned. So things are going right. I'm on drugs, but I'm in the supermarket and I see him. And I see the back of him. Okay. And I shout, oi. And he turns around, sees me, and he runs. He's wow. Off. He's out the door. That then reignited everything else again. So it was like I'd suppressed it for that long. Bang, the emotions are back. Then I lost a kid. Then I'm on drugs. Then my relationship breaks down. It's all his fault. So I get let out of the hospital. And I go stay at my friend's house. Do you know my friend's got a flat? This was in Blackpool. So the hospital was in Blackpool as well. So I said to him, look, can I stay at yours? He said, yeah, I'm going away for two weeks. This is building up to Christmas, to the new year. He said, I'm back on the 3rd of January. That two week beforehand, the flat's yours. So I go, I buy loads of spirits, loads of drugs, lock the flat. I don't go out for two weeks. And I sit drinking, smoking drugs. And I'm feeding all my demons. I'm feed, and I'm thinking about the person who murdered my brother. Thinking about the guy who abused me. I'm thinking about people who had let me down. I'm thinking about my friends, my friends involved. Thinking about my brother's friends for leaving him. 
I'm getting worked up and worked up. I'm thinking I'm a failure. I've not got a job, relationship. I can't even have a kid. I'm a smackhead. I'm worthless. What have I got in life? So I decide I'm going out and I'm going to wreak havoc. And I'm going to seek every single person who done me wrong. And I thought there's two ways it's going to go. I'm going to end up life sentence and I'm going to end up killed. So the 3rd of January, the day my friend's coming back, I go out into the town. I buy a pack of kitchen knives. I buy a balaclava. Bear in mind, I'm seeing a lot of people. So I'm buy a balaclava and I buy some masking tape. I go back to the flat and I'm drinking vodka and I'm just building myself up. I'm building myself up. Got to about three, four o'clock and I start getting a bit more peaceful because I think, right, see you now. See ya. It's happening tonight. It's all going to be finished. My friend's not back by four o'clock. Five o'clock comes, six o'clock, still not back. Seven o'clock, rings me up, I'll be an hour. Eight o'clock, nine o'clock. Now I'm getting angry with him because, again, I can't even succeed in this. So I've failed twice to get him, to get my friend's abuser. Now, this isn't the, my friend's dad, this is a different friend. I fail at that. I fail at work. I fail in relationships. Now I can't even get this right, so now I'm getting even worked up. Now it's getting turned towards my friend because he's messing my plans up. I'm in another town. I need to get the train. I'm going to miss this train and it's not going to happen that night. So he rocks up at 11 o'clock, bangs on the door. Now I had to wait because I had his keys. So I opened the door, he bounces in and it was, to people, it's stupid. To me at that time, with everything, my mental health, what was going on, it was a massive thing and he knew I'd been on my own. So he said, oh, have you had a good Christmas? Mine's been amazing. And as soon as he said that, that was it. The switch went. I pulled my knife out and I just started stabbing him. But I'm not looking at him. I'm looking at everyone else and I'm stabbing him, stabbing him. He goes down and I think, shit, I'm not angry now, but my head's still not right. So I sit down and I think, he's dead. I think he's dead. You know, I'm covered in blood. The flat's covered in blood. So I go through my phone. I think, who do I ring? So I'm going, don't trust, don't trust, don't trust. Don't trust anyone. I get to near the end and I see my uncle's name. And he had a nickname. So it, it come to the W. And I think, wow, yeah, he's done 28 years of jail, my uncle has. Do you know, he's a career criminal. He'll help me. So he rung me up. Now, he told me before I had the breakdown, you need to get some help because I can see you getting a life sentence. You're going over the top with people. So I ring him up and I said, look, I said, it's happened. He said, what's happened? I said, it's finished. He said, who's finished? I said, well, what you told me has happened. Oh, shit. He said, how bad? I said, well, he ain't getting up. What do you want to do? So I said, right, I need to come back, see so-and-so, who's another family member. I need to see so-and-so. I need to get a parcel. Now, a parcel is drugs, because I know I'm going to prison. So I want to plug a load of drugs. So he says, right, come down. We'll sort it out tonight. We'll go see, because we've got the same solicitor. We'll go see Graham. We'll hand yourself in. Not a problem. Now, there's two train stations. I'm walking through Blackpool with, there was a grey tracksuit that's red, because I'm covered. I haven't washed. I'm just thinking it's normal. My uncle rings me. He says, which station are you going to? So I said, South Shore. Right, give us a ring when you get there. 
where you get on the train. As I get to the train station, there's a car park, an Aldi. So I run across, train pulls in. So I run across the car park, jump over a fence, sit on the train. As soon as I sit down, the arm response are already on me. They're on the train. They got on the stop before the North Shore. My uncle's rung the police. So that's how I got arrested on that. Um, so I get arrested. I get a good hiding in the police station. And then I get remanded then to Preston. So you've got no bail now. The, the oh. charge is so serious. It's attempted murder, yeah. Attempted murder. And what are you thinking now that you're inside? Well, the next, like I said, that night, because I was drunk, I'd got a good hiding. So the police give me a good hiding. Uh, I refused to give my clothes when we were in the cell. Uh, I was being racist. I was saying everything I could because the police, I, I was saying every, you know, I was abusing them. So they said, right, give us your clothes. There's a load of them stood there. Give it, Sergeant, give me your clothes. So I sat down. You want them, take them. So they did. So they jumped on me, take me down. And while I'm being took down, I'm getting a good hiding. I'm getting boots in, punches. They strip me naked, run out the cell and leave me. So the next morning, a guy opens a flap and he says, do you want a drink? So I know I'm not going to take coffee because I don't know what they've done to it. So I said, I need some water. You know, my mouth's dry. When he gave it me, I said, how bad is it? And he said, it's bad. I said, he's at the end. And he went, yeah. So I'm thinking, my friend's dead. So I get interviewed. My solicitor says, look, he's not died. You know, it was minutes. When you thought he was dead, what <laughs> went through your head? I didn't care. Because you were just so out there. Yeah, I didn't care. I'd no, I didn't care. And what had happened was, is the neighbours had heard the screaming, because obviously he's screaming, I'm stabbing him. My uncle's rung the police said, my nephew's killed someone who's in Blackpool. They've put it together. I'd locked the flat. So I'd come out the flat. I'd locked the flat, chucked the keys, and got to the train station. So they put it together, kicked the door down. That's how they found him. So he was minutes. You know, he had punctured lungs. It was all his chest area. I think that's it. I'm going to jail for life now, so... Just accepted it. Yeah. Because I didn't have anything outside, so I weren't bothered about myself. Yeah. So now you've got a huge court case. Are you in the news and stuff? Yeah, all over the papers, on the news, the lo like the local news. And what's the prisoner's reaction to you at this point? Well, when I went into Preston, I was I was still nuts because I'd only just come out of that the mental house. So I was bonkers. You know, I weren't. You know, I didn't they didn't put anyone in a cell with me. They left me, which everyone was doubled up, and. So you classified as like the highest security level? Yeah, I was high risk. So the nurses had come and I'd refused medication. They've gone and the prison officers have rushed me. You know, they've rushed in the cell and they give me medication. People left me alone because it's my local. I was like, you know, but they put me on the survey again. So at the flip of the art, you know, I'd just use violence. And who did you come across? Um, the first violent situation after, in this incarceration, your third incarceration. How do you mean? What was the, the next violent situation you got into in this story? Um, I don't know. They're just minor wing sort of stuff where, you know, especially over the surgery, that's the massive one. Uh, I was on a wing, so lads were coming on that were on detoxing, which was even worse because they're rattling. They're not getting the food they want. It's trouble. Um, so the next day after I got sentenced, I'm I. 
I'm off my head. So I'm bouncing around the wing and, you know, I'm loud. And, and the SO called me to the office and he said, do you realise what the sentence was? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've got an eight-year tariff, I said. So once I've done that, and he said, no, no, look at this. So he showed me the computer screen and my record's on there. Sorry, my record's on there. And he pointed and where it said sentence, it said 99 years. And I said, why is it 99 years? He said, because you've got an indefinite sentence. So it's this indefinite for public protection. You'll never get out. And the judge told me that. Don't expect to get released. So I'm doing 99 years, so I'm not going to abide by the prison rules. There's no way am I going to start behaving myself. If I don't do it outside, fuck if I'm doing it inside. I'm going to fight. I'm going to use drugs. You know, so I kept getting moved prison to prison then. Um, and I think I went from Preston to Loudon Grange. So I've got there and I'm on the wing. I don't know anyone. And there's a lot of Birmingham lads. There's a gang, you know, so a lot of people who watch this might know the gang's name, but they're, they're a known gang. So they're on this wing. So I go in the snooker room and I say, who's last boys? Me. So I say, right, after you, because you claim. And it goes then, who plays this next snooker game? So I'm stood against the wall and this big tall lad walks in and he's, I'm next and he sucks his teeth. It's like this, I don't know, it's a prison thing that they do. And I said, yo pal, I said, I'm last. I said, you're after me. So he like looks me up and down, sucks his teeth again and says, I'm next. So I thought, right, he's in this gang, I'm on my own, what do I do? So I said, yeah, no worries, I walk out. I approached someone who worked in one of the industry shops where they make double glazing windows. So I got him to make me two shanks of like the brackets. Op when you, if you've got double glazed window, the little one opens out the two brackets. So I got him to make me a big one and a short one. So he said, what are they for? I said, well, what do you think they're for? So that night I wrap them up, make candles. So I put one as you go in the cell, in the corner where the sink was, I had a shelf, so I took it off, cut the back out, put the little one in there and put that back on. What do you make the handles out of? Uh, cloth, bedding uh, and glue. So I make this, because obviously I want to hold them. So I put one in the corner. So now I think this guy's going to target me now. So I'm going to be prepared. So I've got one of you go in the cell in the corner and where the window was, it opened a bit. I got this Velcro and I stuck it on the inside, like the inside of like the frame, if you will. So I thought wherever I am in my cell, I can get my shank doesn't matter what had happened so that's happened so a couple of days later I'm queuing up for my dinner and you have to queue up go into a room and come out of it again so I'm stood there and there's this commotion on the wing this lad has tried to slash now this is the same gang so one of the gang members has tried to slash the other one from behind he's not managed to do it the mates have split them up they're on the landing so one's on the twos one's on the ground floor and they're chucking glass jars at each other and they're smashing. You've got a screw in the server and one sat in the office. And neither of them come out. So I'm thinking, oh shit. This is serious. This is not, you know, these screws are not. Because it was a private jail. You know, so I got the shanks made. They'd come in a couple of days later. And they said, have you got any spell spin? Have you got anything you shouldn't have? I said, yeah. What? So I said, I've got a bit of hooch underneath the bed. All right, anything else? No. Are you sure? I said, yeah. They said, look, if we find anything. I said, I haven't got anything. All right, go out. I was out a minute. Call me back in. The two shanks were on the table. They knew where they were. 
So they were only that one person who knew. So they said, what are they for? I said, well, they're not clipping my toenails, are they? So I'm down the block again. So I spent seven, seven, eight weeks down there. What's it like in the punishment block? I loved it. What did you love about it? Peace. Peace, because you didn't have to deal with people. So at night time, like, I never shared a cell in all my sentence. Now, a lot of people, you have to. But if you're in for violence or you're an Irish prisoner, you don't share a cell. All day, my paranoia would be watching what people said to me, watching what's going on around me, looking for, you know, because I was wary of everything. My senses were that heightened. When that door got locked at night, I'd be like, you know, and I, I think a lot of lads are probably, you know, they, they understand that. I don't know if you did, that when you're locked up in the cell at night, you know that's it, no one's coming through your door. You can't beat having your own cell. Oh. I played the system a bit from time to time, which is whereby I got my own cell. Yeah, because dealing with people, you're basically living in a toilet with someone, yeah. yeah, and they're shitting right next to you and While you're eating. Like, and and yeah, yeah, it's not, you know, it's not a good situation. No, 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 so I think I probably played it a bit more as well. You know, and I tell them, you put someone in with me, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. You don't believe me, look on my record. Yeah, yeah. And that said it, so then that said it for them itself then. Yeah. You know, so I did play it myself a little bit, but when I was in the block, it was like rehabilitation, mm-hmm. therapy that I was just me. How it, did you pass the time? Reading. Reading? <laughs> yeah. Had you been a reader prior to this? Not really. Not really. Until I start going the block. What kind of books were available in the prison? Um, mainly crime. Autobiographies and crime. Yeah. You know, so that's what I started reading. Um, and was this calming your demons down, being in solitary and just having to read? Yeah. Where I started to relax, gather my thoughts, and then I'd go back on the wing and then it, I'd build and I'd build and I'd be taking drugs and the pressure would pop again and I'd do something else and back down the block I'd go... You know, so I've been in like 10 prisons in the first six years. So the last prison, so obviously, the, you know, there's all, it's all usually the same sort of stuff on a wing. It's a community, you know, so you've got, you know, you've got your, you've got the person who does the drugs, you've got your shop man who does his crisps and chocolate and it's like, it's just a community. You know, you've got your little runners, you've got the lads who clean the cell for a bit of drugs. You know, you got lads who will attack someone for a bit of drugs. It's a council estate, and that's what it is. You know, so it's the same petty. You know, you'd have an argument over a TV magazine, and somebody would get slashed, a rot watered. You know, and and I seen that, and it was probably the worst thing that I seen. What What was the worst thing? The hot watering. Like I'd seen a lad get slashed on the back of his head. What was the hot watering over the incident? I ain't got a clue. It had just kicked off and. I don't, I don't know if the lad had been getting bullied and the next morning the doors have opened and he's just come run out of his cell and just hot water, you know. So it's boiling hot water with loads of sugar and what it does is acts as a syrup. So as soon as it hits your skin, it peels and it burns and burns because you can't get it off. Like mel- melts your skin off. And the more you touch it, you know, the more skin that's coming off. So i seen that and that was like, whew, the scream was, it was like a wounded animal. So he was just... On the run, on his own, and another prisoner just whoosh, threw yeah, it on him. First thing in the morning, as soon as the doors got unlocked, bang, that was it. I've come out, gone to use the microwave, and next minute screaming. You know, because that's, that's the best time to attack someone is first thing. So like me, what I'd do in the morning, at night time I'd put two spray bottles behind my door. 
to when the door got opened in the morning, if I didn't get out of bed to lock my door, because you can lock your door in a lot of jails, so you put your own little catch on the back, I'd have them behind my door, so if anyone come through, I'd hear them and I'd be up, because that's when you get attacked, when you're in bed, when you're naked, you know, when you're asleep, that's when a lot of lads get attacked. You know, there's a lot more cowardice in jail. People do things on the sneaky, sly, you know, moment. So then I end up, I'm in Dovegate now. So I get sent to Dovegate um, and I attack someone. Um, and it was over the size of me chicken. And it's weird because you always seem to get left, you always seem to get left legs of chicken. I don't know why. And, it, you know, I used to joke, where's the right leg gone? All the chickens <laughs> were left leg. It's funny because I had Billy Moore in here today and he's talking about the Thai prison. Uh, the Nigerians were doing the chow serving and they would take all the best bits of the chicken. So he'd get like a chicken head with the mohican oh. on it and the eyeballs and everything <laughs> under his... He'd dig into his rice and he'd get this chicken head. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And get, the Nigerians were like, what do you want, man? You know? And they, just, they were just taking it off themselves or reselling it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of the things that are on the service. So... I used to get jobs in the kitchen and then people would say, right, especially like your gym boys, they'd say, right, can you get us tuna, cheese, you know, so all that wheeling and dealing. I loved it. Um, and that's what a lot of the survey lads do. So they take them chickens. The gym lads would want the chicken. So they take the chicken to sell it, you know, whether it's tobacco or drugs, you know. So I was in Dovegate. The lad tried giving me one that was, it looked anorexic. You know, I didn't even think there was any meat on it. And I said, look, can I have an... And I'm always respectful. I'm not like a... So I said, look, can I have another one, please, pal? Because remember my uncle telling me when I first landed in the adults, he said, there's three people you've got to keep on side in prison. Your cleaner, your survey worker. So your cleaner, your survey worker and your laundry man. Your laundry man's doing your washing. Your survey lad's feeding you. And your cleaner's when you're behind your door... Cleaner, come, can you pass this to whatever, or he'd do his run, the running for you, and that's how he gets his pay. So I was always respectful, so I said, look, can I have another one, please? And he just tried getting mouthy, so I said, I'll see you after. You know, and I ended up in the block again. What did, what did you do to him? It was just fists, it weren't, you know, I didn't have time to, you know, we're just in the cell, a lot of banging about. Did you go to his cell? Oh, yeah. You yeah. steamed in? Yeah, straight away, just, you know, and just start attacking him, and... You know, a bit bullyish, really, because he didn't have really a fight in him. I think he was just trying to... He had to say something to me behind the survey because he has to do it. But then I couldn't let that go. So, you know, and then obviously the officers run in and alarms go off. and So I end up in the block. Um, so I'm down the block seven, eight weeks. They come to me and they say, right, ship out. So I'm like, yeah, sweat sound. So I was hoping to go to Gortry, which was near Wyamot. So... We're going to the reception, so we seen a reception screw that was walking. So he said, the block screw said, I've got Freeston here for ship out. Um, so he said, right. I said, where am I going, Gov? And he said, park. Now these two look at each other, and the block screw must have looked and gone, what have you done? You know, he's told me they're wrong. So I said, where is park? He said, oh, it's just on the border just before you go into Wales. He said, it's not far. Yeah, no, where is? So I get on the bus. So about five hours later, I'm thinking, this is a bit weird. We're getting to Wales, another an hour, hour, hour and a half. So I'm sat here a long time. Pull up at a petrol station and he comes, he said, you all right? I said, yeah. I said, where is this jail? Oh, another hour, he said. 
I said, I'm told it was on the border of Wales. He said, no, 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 it's on the art. He said, the arse end of Wales. They've told you this to get you on here. Because obviously I wouldn't have gone. I'm not going. I didn't want to go to another country. <laughs> <laughs> so I think to myself, right, I'm even going to have to amp up the way I am because I've seen the, the grief Welsh lads get in English jails. So I think not only am I going to have it with the officers because I have it every jail I went in, you know, I was always confrontation. As soon as I walk in reception, I was given, this is our jail, you fuck about, you know, we don't tolerate, blah, you know, try and intimidate me, but that give me permission to up my aggression. And it always escalated, so it was just a circle. So I thought, not only am I going to get it with the officers, I'm going to get it with the inmates, being English. So that's what I do. I'm angry, I'm aggressive, um, I'm fighting, and we're in the workshop, and I was the QC, so like making sure that we're making these alarms, so like panic alarms, which is ironic, for an co outside company. So this lad had come in and he's straight away to the instructor. He said, I've been sent here, but that don't mean I have to fucking work. So I'm looking at the instructor calling. He's a really tim like laid back guy, nice man. So he says, look, if you don't want to be here, go back. I'll nick you. You know, you lose your privileges. So he sits down. A couple of days later, he stood talking to his cellmate. You know, and he was telling people he was French. He had this long uh, in a ponytail. So Collins come out and said, boys, can you go back to your table? It's not break yet. And he's lost his temper. So I thought, right, now I'm going to have it with you. You know, and I, I targeted him. So I'm letting my anger build towards him. So days and days and days. So this day we're coming off the wing and someone tells me what he's in for. Mm. So, you know, so it wasn't nice. Mm. He shouldn't have been where he was. So mm. I thought... Perfect. So we go into the workshop. Um, this lad goes to cut his, cut his ponytail. It was all set up. So I paid this lad. I said, right, you go, because he had a longer in a ponytail. I said, you cut his ponytail. Soon as he jumps up, so I didn't want to attack him, sat down. I wanted a fight. I wanted him to fight me. So he goes behind him, tries cutting the ponytail. He like stands up. The, the lad runs off behind me. And that was it then. I'm into him. You know, and it was minutes. Um, but obviously I've made a mess of him. So he pressed charges. So the police come in. So they they bring the police in. Um, police interview me, charge me with another violent offence. Mm. I get taken to court. Now, there's nothing they can do. I'm doing 99 years. So I get this extra sentence and I'm in the segregation block. How long is the new sentence? It was only six months to run concurrent. Okay. Because I'm doing 99 years, what can they do? So and they give me this big fine to pay him, this victim fine, once released. Now I'm not getting released, so, you know, it was they just it was only a magistrate. So I'm in the block for this. So while I'm in the block, I read your books. Read my books? I read yours, yeah. So what, read, year, what year is this? I read the three of them. So this was this was last year. No, it wasn't. This was four years ago. Four years ago. Yeah. You got a hard time, party time, prison time. I read the three from going into wow. the one that was outside. Yeah. With um, Joe, was it Joe? Joe Arpaio. Yeah. Yeah. Right through. So I'm reading your books. Yeah. And I'm thinking. Wow. How did you get the books in the prison? They were in the library. So in the this block. Was four years ago. I did a talk at HMP Park as part of the Hay Festival, South Wales. Must have been just prior 
And I have a thing where I donate books to prisons. Yeah. So I'm, I, I donated a shitload of books. <laughs> so every day they so used that, to they're come. Those, they're those books. Wow, that's, so that's every crazy. They come and I'd say, because I was polite, like I say, I learn how to play it. So in the block, they're the mean screws. Yeah. They think nothing about coming in and, and really giving you a good idea. Yeah. So I'm in the block. I want easy time anyway. So I'm polite and respectful. So I'd say, go, please, can I go get some books? Yeah, go on. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking and I'm like, shit, 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 shit. And I seen your name. So I'm like, well, I thought, oh, <laughs> wow. I'm reading that and I see the other two. So I read them. So I'm thinking, how the hell does this guy survive? These Amer- <laughs> American jails. <laughs> Which is weird. It's, it's, you know, it's mad. So, yeah. so I get, so I've been down there quite a few weeks and I go to do a seg review. So what they do is a manager comes and it's to see that I'm not going nuts. You know, so he's doing a review. It's like yeah. paperwork to make sure I've got no injuries. My mental health's okay, blah, blah. So there's two screws behind me. So this manager puts my file on the table and he tells the two to go out the room. So a bit of back and forth between them because they're not supposed to leave a prisoner in the block and he says, get out and what have you. So he says to me, right, tell me your life story. I'm taken aback. I'm thinking, what's this guy after? No one's ever asked me this. So he says, tell me your life story. And he was called Mr Goodridge. So he says, tell me your life story. And I'm thinking, is he trying to find information for crimes I've done? Is he, is this the police trying to, do you know what I mean? And I'm trying to work out, are they trying to find my psyche? Are they trying to find weaknesses? What's he after? So he said, look, I'm not going to speak. I just want you to tell me your life story. So I did. I tell him the story I've just told you. So he said to me, right, you've always been met with confrontation, which has justified you your confrontation and blah blah he said I'm going to give you a chance now in the prisons there's regimes so you've got basic, standard enhanced, when you go into a prison you're on standard regime so you get your TV, you get your normal exercise, you go to work, you get association, you get visits when you're on basic you're on 23 hour lock up, you get an hour exercise on your own your meals you eat in your cell you wear prison clothing these we used to call them pedo pumps because they're like two stripes. Pedo pumps. We used to wear the pedo pumps. Um, no TV. But I'd spent most of my jail sentence on basic, you know. And this guy says, I'm the manager of the enhanced wing. He said, and I'm putting you on the enhanced wing. And I'm thinking, what's he after? What's he after? Enhanced, which meant you got, you was out, you got extra social. So like the most jailed got banged up at seven, locked up. The announce wing got locked up at 8 o'clock. So you got an extra hour out at night, extra gym, extra visits. And I'm thinking, what's he after? I'm on basic. And this guy is putting me in and he said, look, I believe you need a chance. Mm. So he puts me on this announce wing. So there was another officer. I didn't like him, Paul. You know, and I've spoke to him today. You know, So he knows I'm using his name. I'm still in contact. You know, He's, he's, he's still supporting me now. So I didn't like him, but after this violent attack, he used to give the nicking, so he was the nicking officer. So we got into discussion about it, and from there, he started working with me. And this probation officer came to see me. She was only, like, she was tiny. She's probably about four foot. So she come and see me. She said, hi, Sean, I'm your new probation officer. So the first six years, when they used to come, I'd say, go away, I'm not interested. I've got 99 years. I'm never going home. Don't waste your time. Don't waste my time. If it was a man and he weren't listening, I'd, you know, I'd tell him to fuck off. Women a bit more respectful. So she's come, should I show him? 
what have you. So I said, look, I'm not being disrespectful to you, miss. I'm never going home, so I'm not interested. And she said to me, I'm not bothered what you're interested in. She said, I'm going to see you every week for an hour, whether you speak or not. She said, but that's what we're going to do. Now, I'm 6'2", six, 6'3", six, and this woman's like, and I'm like, sat on the chair, and I'm still bigger than her, sat on the chair, and I'm looking at her thinking, oh, shit. Oh, she put me she, she put me in my place, you know, and that's what she did. Then I met another guy, and I got into writing then. So I got into doing creative writing. So I got started getting these awards for this Costler and... Okay, let's stop here a second then. Um, Kersler Trust out of London is a brilliant charity which helps prisoners rehabilitate through art. And when I was in prison, my mum actually, through Prisoners Abroad, entered one of my stories into a short story contest for the Kersler Awards, which is what... Sean is talking about. Now, I'd forgotten that my mum had even done that, and Kersler and Prisoners Abroad had done that. And years later, when I got out of prison and I was unemployed and depressed and living at mum and dad's house, I got no money on the dole. I got a call from London saying, you've won this short story contest, you've won a Kersler Award. Come down to London and read it to an audience at the Royal Festival Hall. And that was part of a chain of events that helped me get my life back on track. So I can't credit enough the wonderful people who work for the Kersler Trust and the wonderful people who work for Prisoners Abroad. And if you want to support them, just go on Google. Actually, I shall put the links in the description box below this video for both of them. You can support them by making a donation. You can support them by volunteering to go and work for them. They do have full-time job positions as well. And also, Sean mentioned uh, discovering my trilogy. A lot of people ask why I've not got the link to my books um, in the description boxes recently. So I will start adding the link to my books page on my website. I've got 10 books out right now, which Sean discovered Hard time, party time is the first one, the naughty stuff. Hard time is the jail stuff, and then prison time is the prisoner stuff. All right, so this is just so refreshing to hear now. You've, you've, you've found my books, you've found the curse of trust, and you're winning awards. Yeah. You've got a skill that you didn't know you had. So, yeah, so, and then, then we got unlocked one morning. So I got my first award. I think I got four or five. Now, what, but, what category had you entered in? To get uh, this award? Short story. Uh, true story, uh, fiction, and we did a screenwriting play with Billy. And now this this guy used to come in once a week, and he's a, an author, and he was awesome, and he loved his football. So that's all we spoke about. And he said to me one day, he said, "Have you ever tried writing?" And I was like, "Give it a rest." No, no, write your thoughts and feelings down, rip it up, and put it down the toilet. And I said, "Are you soft?" Are you weak? You know what I mean? Give over them, writing my feelings. I feel sad today. <laughs> Try it. So I tried it, and I was like, I'd ripped it, and I put it down the toilet, and I flushed, and I was like, where's the anger? It gone. And I'm thinking, oh, so now I want more from this guy. So now he teaches me how to write, and I get, the, I get my first award. They open the door one morning. The officer opens the door, John, and it used to be, morning, fat lad. It just, you know, because I was like 21 stone. 
But the banter we had, especially between the English and the Welsh, they could really rip into me. And I loved it because it was like an acceptance. And I'd do it the same to them. And they'd walk around the wing smiling. You know, they're not getting abuse. I'm making them laugh. You know, I try. I think I'm funny, so I try and make people laugh. Whether they're laughing at me, I don't know. So he opens the door and he's like, morning, and walks off. And I thought, shit, John's in a bad mood. I go down and the officers are all sat there and, and I'm thinking... Oh, you can just feel there's something not right. So I go mm, to man. work. I come back and someone says, Mr. Goodridge has hung himself. What? I'm like, wow. Wow, this man has been seeing me daily just for talks. So he never asked for any information. He didn't want to know what was going on the wing. All he wanted to do is know, how are you feeling today, Sean? I'm all right, Mr. Now everyone called him by his first name. But I still, I'm good, thanks, Mr. Goodridge. Oh, I'm not f- feeling too good, Mr. Goodridge. This is going on. And he mm. talked to me. So it hurt. It hit me. And, it, you know, a lot of people, you know, ex-cons that might watch this and think, what? Well, that affected me. Because this man is a human being. Yeah, he's doing a job. This human being is the first man to ever put anything into me, trust-wise, that's tried to help me, is suffering with his own mental health, that he couldn't even speak and he took his own life. So I'm thinking, I have to up myself here. I have to do him proud. I have to, I've got to work hard because I felt like I had to do some justice for what, you know. Um, so I then started, I decided I wanted to learn, teach prisoners to read and write. So there's the Shannon Trust. So I don't know if you've come across them. I will be adding the Shannon Trust link in below this video as well. So Shannon Trust, basically an organisation that they teach inmates how to deliver and then the inmates then help other inmates to read and write. So it was Billy, because of my writing, Billy saying, you've got potential, teach someone. I'm saying, I'm not teaching, I'm not. Try it, try it, try it. So I went on this course, passed the course, they said, right, you're a Shannon Trust mentor. And I don't know why, but they kept giving me all foreign nationals. So these are like African lads that couldn't speak English. And at first I didn't want to do it because I'm trying to teach them a word, but they don't understand. So what I was doing, for an example, um, I had a poku. So a poku sat aside of me and her sentence was, the owl ooted in the tree. So he's pointing like, what, what, what mean, what mean? So I'm like, Ooh. You know, doing animal noises. <laughs> People walking around the wing, and I'm doing animal noises, and I figured, and I've realised, nobody's laughing at me. Nobody's taking the piss. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute. People don't laugh. People aren't, you know, I'm teaching someone. So I start, I got really into that. So then I moved on to becoming another mentor, and that was working with inmates who couldn't go into education classes for behaviour, whether it was behaviour, they were vulnerable, you know, whatever the issue. So I used to have 10 lads on a table in the morning and they'd have like Asperger's, you know, they all had behavioural problems of some sort, whether it was medical or it was behavioural. And that built my confidence, you know, that I had to get work, at the night time I had to set work for them the next day to keep them sat there and keep them occupied. So one lad would love football, so I'd have to write loads of questions and he'd answer them and blah. So that started happening and I started then working with CAF 
every week it got from doing an hour to like two hours and I never spoke about my abuse I never spoke about my brother and the first time I did I'm not ashamed to say it I, I was I was like a baby I burst into tears you know and that was something I never do in front of a woman and she didn't laugh at me and I thought oh she hasn't laughed and that become easier so them four years were the hardest four years than the first six I'd done because I had to, I'd look in the mirror and I could see what was, I could see the bad things about me. And and they were the hardest years of what I'd done to people, you know, the things I'd done to people. Figuring out at like 30-year-old, 31-year-old, who am I? I'm not a violent person, I've done violent things. But if that hadn't have happened, I didn't even know who I was. You know, so trying to work on myself, they were the hardest four years. So I decided then I wanted to start doing talks when I get out. So I approached Billy and I said, look, I want to do talks, but I want to do them to prison officers. So he's like, what? So I said, well, if I can do them in front of a group of prison officers, I can do it to anyone when I get out. So I'd spoke to an ex-officer that worked on my wing. He delivered the training to the prison officers. So I said, look, this is what I want to do. I want to try it to see whether I've got the confidence. All right, then. So my first one was in front of 25 prison officers. I didn't even have a clue what I was doing. This is in the prison? Yeah, my legs were shaking, my mouth was dry. So I ended up doing 11 and then got out. So every month I had to do this talk, you know, to the point that then when I went on parole, you know, I was weren't expecting, I'd done just under 10 years. I weren't expecting release, Sean. I'm thinking I've got 99 years. My behaviour was atrocious. They ain't giving me parole, but all the work I'd done that I didn't realise when my folder come out of all the stuff I'd been working on, well, I'm here, I got out. That's what got you out. Yeah, so it was down to Paul, Kath, Billy and Mr Goodridge was like the main man. Them four people are going to impact the rest of my life. It's so refreshing and moving to hear a story where the staff have just influenced your life in such mm. a profound way. And, and they got, get bad names. Got you, got you released. Yeah. Because, you know, there are some horrific things. I've got videos of guards murdering mentally ill prisoners in the jail I was housed. But they, there are some good people in the system yeah. trying to make a difference. We had a creative writing teacher, um, and he, he really made a difference to me. And there's people go in there and do, do religious services, and they, they make a difference in people's lives. So not not all the staff, and even some of the guards can can be uh, try and help you from time to time. Um, it's tricky for them to do that because there is this huge us versus them mentality, isn't there? And I think the biggest thing, Sean, at the minute with the staff shortages, you know, a lot of cuts are being made, a lot of prison off new. So like the old, and I think the best thing that's happened is right. So you had the old school guard. So his old school was my name's Mister So and So. Your name is this surname. They call you by a surname. They're dying out, and they're bringing all these. And that's what my talks were: was to explain what really goes on on a wing, how they get respect, because respect is both ways. But also for them to realise, hang on, if Sean can come this far because of Paul and Mister Goodridge, what can I do for the next inmate? So there's that. So these new ones are bringing in new ways of doing stuff because punishment doesn't work. Do you know, so it's getting a lot better, but it's, it is still that us, them, do you know, so if you want help, 
you won't speak to a prison officer on the landing because someone else will be sat there watching and then they'll go, he's a grass, he's a snitch him, do you know? So you can't build that, but I didn't care about that. I'd seen these two people who wanted to put something in me, do you know, I'm sorry with the hand gestures, I'm... Uh, you fine? It's two people who wanted to put into me and I trusted them. I trusted them. And look where I, you know, look how I, you know, I got out. Let me ask you this then. So... The hardest part of incarceration I found was being unsentenced and facing 200 years. The violence, the cockroaches, the heat, the guard brutality, the gang mayhem, I could deal with all that. Mm. But thinking I'm never, ever going to get my life back, be back on the streets again, that pushed me to the point where I was ready to kill myself. I was literally going to do it after a guard did a scourge, what, just slash my wrist and bleed out. I couldn't, thinking I've got to spend the rest of my yeah. life in an environment like this. What's the point in going on? Yeah. You thought you had the 99. Yeah. You thought you were never getting out. Yeah. What stopped you from going down the suicidal thoughts? Them suicidal thoughts were there every day. They were there? Every day. Okay. So there's this, I was in Dovegate. They were there all the time. But I'm a coward. I didn't have the bottle. I didn't have the bottle to do it. Well, some people say it would be stronger not to do it. Yeah, maybe. But in myself, I felt I was a, I couldn't do it. I didn't. I, I couldn't do it. So I was in the block and I had the razor blades and I thought this was like my tenth prison. So I'm in Dovegate and I'm thinking, you know, I'm on the phone. My family knew when I were in the block because I didn't ring them. You know, and I'm putting them through shit again. So. Everything would be right, and yeah, I'm all right. I'd ring them, they'd come visit, then all of a sudden, bang, they wouldn't get contact. They're worrying, has he done something to himself? Has he done something to someone else? What's he going through? I was punishing them. So I was in Dovegate, and I had these razor blades, and I had them on the table, and I thought, that's it. Now I'm going to do it. And a song come on the radio, and I listened to that song, and I just burst into tears, and I thought... Do you remember what song it was? Yeah, it's... Uh, I can't remember the name. It goes something like "I'm in the corner." Um, not Callum. I won't ask you to sing it. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do. <laughs> Callum. I think it was Callum Smith or Cat. I don't know. Had you heard it previous, and it was no. something to do with like no. your life, or it was just a, a new song? It's a new song. Okay, but I listened to the lyrics, and I was like, it just made me cry that much. That them thoughts of killing myself went. What about the lyrics made you cry and, and just resonated? Bringing back, like, thinking about, like, my, my ex-girlfriends and, you know, because I was still madly in love with her and, you know, and, and I just listening to that, I just associated that with her, you know, and it just, I don't know, it just listening to them lyrics just got right into me. So that stopped myself from killing myself. And then obviously I moved to Park. And, but I always had them thoughts. I just didn't have the bottle to do it. Right, my next question is then, going from facing 200 years to getting sentenced to nine and a half years was like the happiest day of my life. One of the happiest days of my life. Because I could then see I was actually going to get my life back. So how did you find out that you were actually not going to be doing the 99 anymore? You were going to get released? Right, how so, did that make you feel? Right, so the year before my parole, my inside and outside probation, calf was the inside, the inside and outside said, we ain't back in release, you're not going home. 
you're not going home. So in that year, I'd done a lot of work with her. So when it came up to the parole and we did all the work, everybody was backing me by the outside probation, which is a normal thing. It, I got grilled for like 20 minutes when they should go on for hours. I got grilled for 20 minutes off a psychologist. The judge said, I have no questions, it's over. I walked out and my sister said, I'm, I had an independent psychologist who'd been my psychologist for three years in the prison. We come out and he basically said, you're going home. Three days later, my mum got a phone call off my solicitor, he's going home, but I didn't get told till the day after when my probation officer come in and said, I've got some bad news for you. And she gave me the letter and I went, <sighs> because even though I'm saying to myself, I'm getting knocked back, still that bit of hope. People can't, or it's always like people say, oh, think of the worst. No, because you still have that hope. That hope is still there, so I, I don't believe in you just think of the worst. You've got to have that bit of hope. It's like in Shawshank Redemption, isn't it, where he's yeah. going in front of the board. Yeah, so, but it didn't happen. And, and like, she gave me the letter and she said, I'm sorry, Sean. And I was in I was in work, I worked in the a warehouse, so I'm in the back office and I like, she said, open it. I said, what? what's the fucking point, you know what I mean? She said, just open it and read it. And I looked, you've been granted parole. And I said, why are you saying sorry? She said, oh, because we're not working together no more. And I was like, fucking <laughs> bitch. Bang. Do you know what I mean? I was like, wow. Wow. And that stopped me from wanting to cry to doing your reaction. Yeah. It was mental. And I couldn't believe it. And I kept saying to people, I'm a, like, to, I'd, I'd be on the wing. I'd be playing like the PlayStation with some of the lads. I'd put the joypad, go to the office and say, you're not joking, are you? They're not like trying to wind me up and trying to like torture me. And they'd be like, no, no, no. So it took them like three months. But for three months, I tortured them saying, is there any letters saying that they made a mistake or I still could not believe it. I've got 99 years. I'm never going home. I'm never going to live my life to you going home. Wow. So wow. So when you went back into your cell, immediately after you'd found out that same day, what's going through your head? Well, she told me when I was in work, so I rung yeah. back to the wing. Yeah. I rung my dad. Yeah. Do you know, I said, Dad, Dad, he said, ring me back, I'm at work. He said, I'm making a delivery. And put phone down, I was like, you tosser. <laughs> I want to tell you my news. Like, <laughs> so I ring my mum up. I'm like, Mum, Mum. She said, I already know. She said, I got told yesterday. I was like, why can't you just like play and go, what is it, son? Oh, that's a mate. No, I got told. I like, so I went back to work, but it was just like an A's. And I went back that night, and I just didn't sleep that night. You couldn't sleep, you're no. so excited. Next day I went back to work, I was drenling, kept, I didn't even feel tired. But later that night, because I'd not I'd slept, you know, it was the second night, I just burst out, do you know what I mean? But it was tears of joy, you know, and then the World Cup started. They were the, like, them three months knowing I was going home, they were actually hard, in the sense that there's a lot of jealous people. A lot of people coming up, like, hugging me, well done, Sean, you deserve it, you know, you're a good lad. But then you had some that be like, yeah, well done. And knowing in their head they've still got a lot of years left to serve, you know, people who were trying stuff with me. Really? That wouldn't try it before, that wouldn't, so they were trying to push my button. They were oh. trying to, like, there was one person that was sat there and he just went, I fucking hate the English. And I said, I said, why do you hate them? What, what's anyone ever done? Ah, we just fucking hate. And I said, right, I don't want to get in this conversation. I got up and I walked away. 
And I felt that big because I'm sat with my mates as well. But it was only after when they come, because obviously I went to my cell, you know, and I'm, I'm smoking and they come down and they said, look, what you did, that was amazing. You got up and walked away. That person wanted you to smack him. People were trying them little bits. So not only was the euphoria, there was a lot of fear that at any minute it can be taken away. If I'd have cracked someone, if I'd have got a drug test, gone. Do you know? So the day of release was probably was frightening. It was more probably more frightening than getting the sentence. Take us through the day of your release. So I woke up early and I'd got a three-piece suit that I went on my parole with because <sighs> I'd never owned a suit. So I'd saved up, I'd saved up, and I bought this three-piece suit for my parole, so I was going home in that. People saying, you're going out in your three-piece? You go, yeah, yeah, I got parole in this. I want to feel some pride. <laughs> so I got up like four or five o'clock, got a shower, and I'm thinking, I want to put my suit on, I want to put my suit on. I had nothing in my cell because I'd accumulated that much stuff, stereo, PlayStation, DVD player, everything had gone. That 10 years' worth of stuff, all my friends had, because that's what you do, you give it. So I'm sat in this empty cell and I'm looking around, the TV sounds like it's mega loud because there's no in the cell and I'm sat and I'm thinking, this is like the first day I came into prison. I didn't have anything. I've got the same nerves about that door opening like the first morning. So when you go in that jail, the next morning when you wake up, it's them nerves of the unknown. I was getting them same unknown what's going to happen today the unknown. I never expected to walk in out the gate. So they opened the door and I think I was just that hyper and, you know, you know, there's a lot of good people I met, prison officers and inmates, you know, to the point where I was talking to that many people, constantly like talking to them, to, and then people are going to work that they just said, right, Sean, you know, fuck off, get off the wing. Like, wow. You know, and I walked out, my dad was stood there and I hugged my dad. And he didn't tell me till last week. And he said, when I got older, he said you was physically shaking. And I didn't realise. And we went for breakfast. <laughs> and I probably, I yeah, we got a big full breakfast and I was looking forward to it. And I was starving, thinking my first fry up, that's what everyone wants. I ate a sausage, probably ate a slice of the thing in my bacon. And I couldn't eat it because I felt sick. I felt sick. Do you know that? And now the journey of getting out has just been awesome. It's interesting because people think when you go in prison, you've got this visceral reaction. But coming out creates the same reaction, doesn't it? It's going it? in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how did you break your relationship with drugs? The fear of going back to jail. Had you stopped? Once you were doing like the more positive activity in the prison, yeah. had you no. already put it behind you or no. you were still on the drugs? No, I was still. You know, okay. so I was like, Sniffing Subitex, which is like a, an opiate kind of, you get off your head. Yeah. So I was, and I was smoking weed. Um, then it changed to this new one, this spice. Spice. And then I only had that once and I thought I was going to die. And I went down and and I was in a cell on my own. So I felt my heart going and I, my body paralysed. And I thought, oh, shit. Because my heart just kept getting faster and faster and mm. faster. And I've gone. Anyway, I come to, I was on the floor, and I thought, never again. Then when I got my parole, because people had come up to me and they say, oh, like, all my friends, yeah, I've got a sore to reorder. And that's what I did. If I got something, I'd share with them. As soon as I got parole, it was so easy to say, no, no, because if I get a drug test, um, 
I'm in trouble. That's a minimum two year knockback for my parole. Do you know? So I would then, do you know, and like now, I get into any sort of trouble because of the license conditions I'm on. I go back. If I don't commit an offence, I'm in for a minimum two, three year. If I commit an offence, especially violence, they'll never ever let me out again. There's no parole. That's it. Because I've still got the 99 year sentence on me. Wow, that's hanging over you. So I'm on license for life. I have to see a probation officer for life every week. There's that many conditions, so I go for a job. Got to tell my probation officer. I move house. Got to tell my probation officer. I get a girlfriend. Got to tell my probation officer. Everything I do, because then he's got to ring the police. The police have got to be notified. You know, it's mental. I remember Pepsi Watson. He mentioned about the girlfriend and um, she had to be notified and all this stuff. And that yeah. caused the relationship to end. Well, luckily, I've... sorry. Yeah, go on, go on. So, like, I then got back when my ex didn't last. This was the I ex you were pining yeah, for. Yeah, couldn't. Yeah, it didn't yeah. last. So, so I spent like <coughs> I spent eight like eight months on my own, and I got talking to this woman, and she don't drink, she don't do drugs, never been in trouble. And we were talking, and she said, "Have you got a car?" And I said, "No." Why not? And I thought, shit, here it comes. I said, look, I got banned, I said, and, and I'd not told her I'd been to jail. So the next text message was, have you ever been to jail? So on, like, your WhatsApp, people can, when you start typing, you can see the person typing, and if they delete, it shows, so I'm typing, delete, typing, delete, type <laughs> about 15 minutes, anyway, I sent her this message. <laughs> trying to work out, how do I tell, how do I tell this person, like, I've been to jail, she's awesome, she's never lived my lifestyle. Soon as I tell her, she's going to go, ta-da, do you know what I mean? I ain't going near you, mm. you know? So anyway, a message coming, it was, I thought you had. And I thought, oh, shit. So I ignored it. I thought, that's the end of it. Anyway, she contacted me another 20 minutes later. Why are you not talking? I told her absolutely everything. Do you know? So we went on a date five weeks ago. The next morning, she got my name, so she Googled it and... I'd not even told her everything, but she'd read the Google and I thought, and I didn't know till the weekend gone that she'd read it and I said, wow, and you're still stuck. Like, yeah, I needed to get to know you. Do you know, she's so supportive. Do you know, she's awesome. She's amazing. So it's like, I told her, I said, look, my probation officer's going to want to speak to you. Because that bothered me when he said, we have to know. And I said, I ain't a sex offender. I'm not, do you know, I'm not a nonce. But he had to tell my partner and if they've got kids and he said, it's because of the violence. If they've been a, had abusive relationships and social services, so it can cause a lot of problems. Luckily, I've hit luck, you know, where mine's... What about finding work? Has that been problematic? Yeah. Yeah, so I've been getting work. Can you tell us about the rejections as well? So I went... So about three, four months ago, I went into an agency and I said, have you got any jobs? Now, when I was... In Park, I'd got an MVQ in warehousing, so I got this level two MVQ, and the manager there taught me everything. So I thought, well, I've got that. So I've gone into this agency, and I said, you got any jobs? He said, doing what? I said, warehousing, a driver's mate. He said, oh, we've loads, we've loads. He said, can you come in in the morning for an interview? Yes, I'll come out, run my family. I've got an interview. I said, yay. The next morning, I'd put my shirt and my pants on, and, you know, I'd got all my um, qualifications, and, and I went in. And the first question he asked, he said, what job are you doing or what job have you been doing? And I went, I've been away for 10 years. And he went, oh, brilliant. He said, where have you been? 
thinking I'd been travelling or somewhere. Spain. <laughs> Where have you been? And I said, Lord, I'm going to be honest. I said, I've been to prison. He said, I'm not interested. He said, interview's over. And I said, well, you got jobs. No, no, we haven't got anything for you. I said, can you not let me? He said, no, no, I'm not interested. Go away. And that's what it's been. So like I said, I've been getting a lot of work, but it's not consistent. Do you know? So I've signed up to a boxing charity match in five months. Um, a boxing charity match? Yeah, so it's a white collar. Uh, I've now got... Have a, you got a boxing history then? Not really. I just... Something I've always loved. So I thought I need to learn discipline, challenge. And I've seen it and I thought I'll sign up to that. But now I've got my own trainer who's son and daughter, they box for England, European Championships. So every day, me, he's training me. So I'm hoping got an amateur fight in three months. So I'm focused on that. My relationship, doing talks around schools, colleges, unis. You know, if, if, I, if school teachers watching this mm. wanted you to come in and do a talk, how would they get a hold of you? Have you got something I could put below this video? Yeah, my email address. Your email address. Yeah. And what area um, would you be available in? Lancashire, mainly Accrington, but Lancashire. Accrington, Lancashire area. Yeah, so I was doing some in Leeds in Yorkshire, but I was going with an organisation. Yeah. So I was doing, I've done like, I think about 13, so I've done schools, colleges and unis. Yeah. Now I've gone back home, it's not being done in my town, so I need to do it. But I'm struggling because I'm going into schools, they're listening to my story and saying it's amazing, but we've got safeguarding. I've no profile, I'm not an organisation, nobody knows anything about me, I'm just this violent person. Yeah, know? it's a risk for a school to bring it's a hard. prisoner in because it's an unknown thing. Yeah. you got to, like, it's, if you get a website up and have, like, testimonials from other schools and yeah. video clips of you doing... People ask me, how do you get into schools? You've got to get a reputation, you've got to build it up, get testimonials from other schools. I um, got a brochure printed up this is how I started it. Got a brochure printed up from Vistaprint, like 5,000 of them. Right. And then just started like mailing hundreds of them every term to the schools. And, you know, a hundred of them would just get thrown in the trash. Yeah. And then I get one, I'd respond, and it just built up from there. It's, it's just getting the contacts and getting, yeah. getting your reputation built up. But it's like, it's even if like, like for doing this now, you know, I ain't doing this for me. So it's like, this is like a bit of an educational one. So even if like the schools don't want me to go in, they can use this. They can. And what? What if you went into school? What is your message? Then, as well as telling your life story, yeah. what's the moral? So when I tell, when I go into schools and I talk and I talk about the abuse, you know, uh, it's more about looking at dangers of adults. If something don't feel right, you've got to speak. If you're struggling with mental health, so if a teenager's sad and they don't know why they're feeling sad, talk to your parent teacher you have to talk because if they don't talk later in life they end up like me so my story is you don't end up like me if you're carrying a knife why are you carrying a knife you're over scared of something you're involved in something you've got to talk and say this is going on in the area or this is why i want to do this can you help me because ultimately you're going to end up dead or life sentence like me so that's my message is got to talk so you have to talk yeah, it's really positive, man. A lot of um, people are interested in prison survival advice as well. You've done free stretches. Yeah. How many total years have you served throughout all your stretches? Okay, so we're 2019 now. So I got out 18. So from 2003 to 2018, I had a year and two week out. 
that was outside. So I had the two week and I had a 12 month and that's all I've had since 2003. So I've spent like 14 and odd years since 2003 in jail. And what would be your main prisoner survival advice for a young person who's going into prison? Just keep your head down. Don't borrow. Don't get involved in the politics. Um, and you've got to use what's being offered because there is good people in them prisons. Do you know, so if you open up and say, this is why I've done what I've done, they will. people will help you. Do you know, you just don't start the borrowing and... When you say don't get involved in the politics, yeah, what does that mean exactly? So that means getting involved in someone else's disputes. So if two people are arguing or they're falling out, don't get involved in it. You know, don't put your bit in and say to him, oh, this, 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 and then you're saying that to him because it'll turn back on you. So whatever's going on, you keep out the way of it. You know, if there's problems going on with drugs, yeah, you keep away from them people. You know, don't get mixed up in it because once you're mixed up, it's same as outside. When you get part of a gang in jail, you have to do the same things as you do outside because if you don't, people turn on you because people, you know, there's that gang mentality as everyone has each other's back, you know, and don't be afraid to ask for help. How easy is it to stay away from drugs in prison? It's not easy. It's not. If I'm honest, it's not easy. So the best thing to do is to find... A lot of jails have a drug-free wing, so people giving drug tests, you know, people that go on there usually want to stay away from it. Um, get yourself onto an enhanced wing, you know, because people don't want to lose that. What does that mean exactly, enhanced wing? Uh, so, like I explained about the behaviour regime, so you've got basic, standard, enhanced. So enhanced is more visits, more gym time, extra time out your cell. Um, you know, people want to keep that because you get your better jobs, you get the more trusted jobs, you know, and there's not as much drugs as what there is on the other wings. But it's not easy. Would you, you know, recommend exercise gym time as a way of getting off drugs? Because you mentioned like, like your boxing yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Um, martial arts, fitness classes, all mm. those kinds of things have helped me since post-release. So if you can engage in a more positive activity, physical activity. Yeah, definitely. So for me, like I have my angry days and I have days where I think I can't cope or I have them urges, so I either go for a run. So like since October last year, we're in June now, I've lost four stone, you know, so and the boxing's helped. You know, it's keeping active and not going back. Like I'm still back in my old area, which ain't going to be for long. But I do not, I've not been out drinking with anyone. I don't speak to any of my old associates. you got to keep away from that, you know, and stay positive and active. Did you develop a fitness routine in the prison? No, because like I said, I got up to like 21 stone, so I didn't really train, you know, because I'd go in the little gym and I'd get wound up with people and then I'd just want to hit them with a dumbbell because lads go in and they're stutting, you know, there's this facade now. There's a lot of good training lads in there that are big, you know, but there's also a lot of, like, dickheads who will cause trouble and just want to fight with you. So I didn't. So I ballooned up to 21 stone, and that was fat because I was eating, but I only played football. What helped me was more my education side. You know, that helped me keep focused, keep off drugs, you know. So you've given advice about uh, fitness and routine and... Dealing with the prisoners and staying away from the mix. Mm. What about a young person in going in? Advice about them interacting with guards. 
is not you have to forget that because it's same as the police it's us and them um, unless you're disrespectful you know the chances of you getting beat up off a prison officer are pretty slim now because they all wear body cameras um, so it's be respectful yeah you don't have to ask like them but you just be respectful um, and allow them to let you in because if I didn't allow Paul and Mr Goodridge I wouldn't be out of jail so you have to trust them to think. So if you've got a problem, ask someone. If they don't deal with it, don't get anti-authority and think they're all the same. You ask somebody else. You've got to keep, and just keep asking until you find that person who wants to help because there is people who want to help you. What if a young person goes in over like a big ego and they're acting like tough and flash yeah. or did they like demonstrate they've got a lot of money, things like that? What, what could potentially happen there? So I've seen it. So there's lads that go in and they've probably met more millionaires you know, than what I've seen on TV of like Housewives of Cheshire. I've seen more millionaires in there than what they have on that TV programme. You know, everyone's a millionaire and they've all got businesses and fancy cars. That is not liked because you've got real gangsters. Yeah, and I've come across men that have I thought, oh shit, I would never want to come across because they're real men. They are dangerous, dangerous men. So you've got them who think, all right, your parents are millionaires. I'm going to fucking kidnap you. I'm going to threaten your parents to say, you send me so much money and we'll protect your son. If you don't, he's getting it. I've seen it happen. People are not interested in what you've got. People want to see if you're a tidy person. You know, so you don't bullshit. Don't big yourself up if you can't back it up because you're going to get found out because somebody in there can handle themselves is going to think, oh, he can handle himself. He's going to batter you or they're going to do something even worse because they think you're an odd man. You know, you've got to be yourself. If you're not a violent man, don't act like it. How can you tell who's a real gangster in prison? Because they're quiet. They're quiet and people respect them. They've got a lot of stuff, but they're not interested in the day-to-day shit of the wing, of the petty little drugs or, you know, you know who they are. The ones who would do all this with the chest out, they're the vulnerable ones. They're the ones that are riding something. And not all of them, because there is some, like, odd men and crazy ones that are loud. The real ones are usually they are the quietest ones. So people go in and they see these guys acting big, bad and tough. Yeah. Where I was housed, you like you see all these, like, Nazi guys and stuff around. But then it might be some little old man who's, like, a shot caller yeah. with his spectacles on, just looks like he wouldn't hurt a fly, and he's already, you know, done not put all his work in. And um, but you wouldn't think you think the big guys are running it, but actually the yeah. little guys running it. Yeah, they're just the muscle. They're the ones who get sent out on doing the jobs and doing yeah. doing the shitty. Bring me, fetch me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So there's that. It's just about being yourself, you know, and not trying to be someone you're not because you get found out. And how hard is it to stay away from spice? It seems like spice is everywhere. You can't stay away from it. You, Did you see people wigging out on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I seen a lad who, I didn't actually see him, but he lived across from me on the landing. We've all been banged up at dinner time. Next minute, all the nurses are running. Bring the defibrillator, bring the defibrillator. His cellmate got up to go to a funeral. The screws opened the door at lunchtime, said, right, come on, we're escorting you. He's gone to wake his cellmate up to say, I'll see you later. He's not woke up. He's fucking hot, his heart stopped. They brought him back to life, and a week later, he's back on it again. So lads will be walking down the landing, the the deck. 
you know, same as you see it on the news, if not worse. You know, so it's all about your self control because you can't get, you can't stay away from it. Did you come across any famous prisoners, like TV celebrities, etc., or any famous gangsters during those uh, years you did? Um, Danny G and Dovegate. I didn't so, know him though. So you came across Danny G. Know about him, mate. Yeah, he have you seen know about him? Have you seen the video? Um, no. So I've got. I interviewed a prison guard, Manchester Strangeways. That's right down the block. And he starts out with a thirty-minute story of Danny G fighting ten guards. Yeah. And they're they're tornado trained guards. Yeah. And this guy is such you know strong and knows what he's doing. They're taking it in turns. Like they're going in, battering it, trying to batter him, and then coming out because they're running out of breath. Yeah. Getting the breath back, going back in. And the end of this fight, he's wearing their goggles and their stuff and just laughing at them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what, what, where, did you, where did you meet I him? I came at? across him. So I don't know him, know him. I came yeah. across him in Dovegate. In Dovegate? Um, yeah. Did but, you say hello to him or speak to him? No, no, no. I just knew. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone knows who he is. Yeah. So he is. Not really a troublemaker until someone sets him off, I think. Yeah. But I don't want to talk much about other people, but yeah. um I came across another guy on the second sentence and he was in American prison. Yeah. So I'm talking and like there's rivalries between Blackburn Rovers and Burnley. <laughs> they hate each and I mean it's pure <laughs> hatred. And I'd made a mistake of calling him because we call him the Dingles. So I said, Oh you're a fucking dingle, are you? Who'd you say that to? To this man. Yeah. And same again, short glasses. Didn't look, you know, I thought I was... Until someone said, I think you need to come with me. And I said, why? He said, come and read this. And I gone to his cell and he opened a book and the guy's picture's there. He's only the head of the firm, of the, like, the hooligan firm. And I was like... <sighs> so obviously I went and said, I apologise about that, you know. And he was telling me about how he survived in American jails because he'd done all this, like, massage therapy stuff and with his martial arts and... Um, famous people not really came across a lot of crazy people who were like serious guys but no how do you know they were crazy because they're quiet and then when they lose the, the <laughs> shit you know about it they go ape shit yeah and you have them sort of ones and and as soon as like the prison officers because you know the prison officers know who they are and you know and you find that they are slick as well a lot of prison officers that are slick because they know that I think that's how you know someone's worth something because they get arse licked you know they don't shout they're not aggressive it's just the way they carry themselves yeah so is there anything you would like to say to all the people watching this video about your experience or a message to them I think I've said most about doing the talk You've got to ask for help. Do you know if things are going on? You've got to ask for help. I think for the wider public is is not to judge. Do you know because we all judge and go, he's done this, he's done that. When if people listen to my story, if that hadn't have happened to me at thirteen, I wouldn't have been sat here now. Do you know there's always a reason why people behave or do things. Do you know you've got to give people a chance, not put other people down because one day you could be in that position yourself. You know. you've, you've told your story absolutely brilliantly. I thank you so much. And if you are in 
the Accrington, Lanks area if you're a student or a teacher. Sean's email is going to be in the description box below the video. Just from what you've heard tonight, you know, show your teachers this video and say, look, this guy's legit. He's got a hell of a story. Knife crime is such a huge problem right now. And all most of your stuff revolved, or the major offences revolved around knife crime. Um, get, in, uh, get in those schools, and I think you could do a really good job um, showing the kids, you know, the consequences of what happens when you pick up a knife and you go around like that. So, really, thank you for coming well, in, brother. Yeah, thank yeah, you cheers, very much. Man. Yeah, cheers, Sean. Take care, yourself. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, you're Thanks. welcome. Yeah.